All right, John 12. It was actually rather difficult to pick an Old Testament passage to uh, be read by Jerry this week because I could think of at least two others that would have been just as pertinent, uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 and Psalm 118, and uh, we'll touch on those in the course of the sermon. Um, so we'll get there. All right. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that they are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for these people. As I said, most of us uh, are here because we know Christ and love Christ. Uh, but there may be some, including our children, who don't yet. We ask that you would reveal the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ to all of us this morning. We need to be filled with the knowledge of your will. We need wisdom and understanding from the Spirit as we look at this passage. We ask that you would use it to teach us to walk in a manner worthy of you, one that pleases you and bears fruit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your beloved Son and the Savior of sinners. Amen. Yesterday was for some people, anyway, not me, but for some people, it was a big day. There was a lot of fanfare yesterday in a place called Kentucky. I've been to Kentucky on a couple of occasions. I never feel any sense of fanfare when I'm in Kentucky. But there was a big race that took place yesterday, and it was the culmination of a lot of uh, preparation and practice on the behalf of jockeys and racehorses. Go figure. This would be big news, right? I apologize right now for any of you who love horse racing. Um, actually, the, the winner raises horses in the gallus. Didn't know this. And he has actually won a couple of, I think, three or four uh, Kentucky Derbies already. So anyway, culmination of all this. And I just you think about it for a moment. These racehorses and these jockeys, they're in their, their stalls, so to speak. I don't know what they call those things. Waiting for the, the bell to ring and the gate to open, ready to move at the moment's notice. And that's, I think, the image I want you to get as we think about Jesus and the triumphal entry. Everything in John's Gospel has been leading to this moment. He has been preparing for this moment. He's been laying down the groundwork of the Gospel for the, for the people that he's been interacting with. But he's not yet been revealed as the King, and that moment is about to happen. He's on the donkey instead of the racehorse. 
And the gate is about to open for him to be revealed as the rightful king. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is the king we need, but not necessarily the one that people want. There's always got to be the reality. This is the reality of the gospel. There's always the flip side. Because the gospel is not embraced as God's truth and goodness as it ought to be. So there's always a negative response that accompanies the preaching of the gospel on the part of some anyway. Let's start with the first of our three ideas that kind of work us through that big idea. And that is the, the, the command, really, to welcome Jesus as the rightful king. The Passover was a very popular feast. Who doesn't like a feast, I say? Uh, but the Passover was a very popular one. Uh, the historian Josephus notes that in the 60s, um, not 1960s, you know, back then, those 60s, uh, about 2.7 million people showed up for the Passover. Now remember, Jerusalem is not a big city. It's not huge. Imagine 2.7 million people descending upon this small city for a feast. Imagine 2.7 million people descending on Tucson for something that would last the greater part of a week. It'd be insanity. Now, this takes place as many of the pilgrims are starting to descend upon that city. Okay? They're making their way into Jerusalem, and they recognize Jesus, and they, they long for Jesus, so to speak. And as uh, John tells us, they do this precisely because they have heard about the, the raising of Lazarus. And so that's in their minds. The greatness of Jesus, able to raise the dead, is in their minds, and they begin to honor Jesus on the way. Okay? Now, the closest thing I can think of to what that must have been like would be something akin to a Super Bowl parade. Boston has seen nine championship parades since I've been married. I haven't been to any of them, but I've watched them on TV. It's mayhem, and people are filled with joy and wonder, and it's probably wall-to-wall people, and that's kind of what the impression I get anyway of what's going on. It's almost wall-to-wall people. The donkey is coming down. There's palm fronds going everywhere, and people are excited, and there's cheering, and there's shouting. That's what it's like. They're caught up in the moment. They're throwing, in a sense, all caution to the wind because they're just filled with joy, and it's a joy that is connected to Jesus in that moment. First off, we see the palm branches. And in terms of the feasts, initially, palm branches were connected to the Feast of Tabernacles or booths because they would use these to construct places for themselves to sleep over the course of the feast. That's not really connected with Passover. But about 200 years before Jesus came, there were some events that took place that resulted in palm branches being a sign of not only victory, but also a sign of their uh, nationalism, a national symbol. Because, and I always mispronounce this empire. I just, that's why I wanted to say the Greeks just to get it over with, but it was actually uh, a, the Seleucid rule. Did I say it right? Close enough for government work? Okay. Um, some people accuse R.C. Sproul of not being able to pronounce things very well, and I share that trait with him. Um, anyway, 
Okay, the, one of the three Greek empires, you know, after, after Alexander the Great died, it was, the empire was split into three, and the Seleucids were the ones that ruled over this part of the world uh, after Alexander the Great. And they had oppressed the Israelites, and uh, one of them, of course, had cut off Jewish worship within the temple. Okay, and didn't go, that wasn't far enough, he then had to defile the temple. And so what happens is that a family by the name of Maccabees, and that was not their original name, I think. That was one given to them, because Maccabees means hammer. Okay, so I think of, of course, Charles Martel, who, of course, uh, delivered Europe at that point in time from the incursion of the Muslims uh, in France uh, a long time ago. Well, these they're like Charles Martel, this whole family. They formed a guerrilla unit uh, to form an insurrection uh, against the oppressors, and uh, the father died fighting the battle, and then the, the sons rose up and, uh, and fought the battle and eventually removed that empire from its domination. And palm branches were one of the symbols that, re- that came out of that, revealing the victory that they had over the oppressor and a sign of their nationalism. And so these people, I think, are throwing the palm branches out, not just for the fun of it, but for that connection as a people who are currently under the oppression of Rome, who want to be free. The second main thing that we see here um, is the use of the Halal Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118, uh, the pilgrims would often sing these as they go into the feasts, and these, these particular psalms had a great priority in the life of Israel and its worship in the feast days particularly uh, Psalm 118, and it is Psalm 118 that they quote here with reference to Jesus. In verse 25, that psalm reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so when we look at this in John's Gospel and see Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we see that Hosanna is basically a transliteration from the Hebrew into the Greek of that phrase, save us. It is a plea for God to save them, and they're recognizing that blessedness comes from the one who comes in the name of the Lord. These are a people that are longing for deliverance. They're longing for earthly salvation from the hand of the foe. They're recognizing that this honored person that they're singing about comes in the name or the authority of the Lord. In other words, they are recognizing him as the rightful Davidic king. That's what's going on in their minds. As we see from what they're saying, what they're invoking in this process. And they follow it up with this phrase that is not found in Psalm 118, even the king of Israel. And see, they're owning him as the rightful king who that they believe is intending to deliver them from Rome. Now let's note something. Jesus does not reject or renounce the claim that he is king. 
earlier, I mean, through the, most of this gospel, when Jesus affirms things about himself, he often does it in sort of a, a, a cloudy, confusing fashion. That unless you kind of uh, know exactly what he's saying, uh, you don't quite get. And that's why so many people were a little confused uh, at times by Jesus. Um, there are times when the, just the obtuseness of the sinful nature got in the way. But here Jesus welcomes their honoring him as the king. This is a shift in what we have seen thus far in his gospel. He openly welcomes these cries. He doesn't say, stop! What are you doing? He embraces them. And therefore endorses and encourages them. Now, we'll get, we'll get to what all that they meant more about when they welcomed Jesus. But let's, let's focus on this part first. They welcome Jesus as king. We struggle, I think, sometimes, to welcome Jesus as king. Uh, we want Jesus to deliver us, and they were welcoming, I think, that part of Jesus as king, the, the one who comes and defends and protects and delivers and all of that kind of stuff. But not necessarily embrace the one who would therefore then rule over them. We can't divide Jesus. He comes as a package. We cannot, in good conscience, embrace Jesus as Savior, uh, but reject Him as Lord because He is both. He is one Jesus. He's not, we cannot get a partial Jesus, so to speak. So that's why I have that idea, welcome Jesus as the rightful King. Because I will say that there is a part of you even as a Christian, that may resist Jesus as your rightful king. Because there's a part of you that still loves to sin. It's there. Let's not ignore it or deny it. Jesus enters the city for Passover as the rightful king of Israel who comes to rule. Secondly, let's ponder this, that Jesus challenges our expectations as king. Now, all of the symbols, all of those palm branches are tied with that symbol of basically insurrection, of, of trying to throw off the uh, oppressor. And Jesus does not take the posture of an insurrectionist or a conqueror. But I mean, he's not like... Julius Caesar. Remember, when Julius decided he wanted to rule the Roman Empire, he, did, he broke the law, and he brought his armies across the Tiber River. You weren't supposed to do that. Your armies were supposed to remain outside the thing, outside of the, the Tiber, so that you would not bring them and intimidate the Senate. And that's exactly what he did to gain control. Jesus is here, not gathering an army. He's not shouting out, Go get your swords! Let's go and take care of the soldiers in town! He's not doing that. Okay? But it's even more, I think, profound than something as simple as that. John, for some reason, that's part of why we read Luke's account of this, he doesn't tell you how the donkey showed up, like Luke does. Okay? Because that's really, he didn't care about that. 
What he cares about is that Jesus is on the donkey. Because it's the donkey that's significant, not so much how it gets there. Okay? Jesus is riding a colt, a little donkey. R.C. notes that the donkeys there apparently were shorter than the ones here, so he probably had to fold up his legs at his knees to not drag them on the ground. But um, it's not a war horse. It's not what you would generally expect from a king who's getting ready to throw off the yoke of Rome. That's not how I would choose to stand up to Rome. Me and my donkey. Here we go. They're trembling in their boots, I'm sure, right? That wasn't Jesus' purpose. First off, I mentioned 1 Kings 1. Solomon was revealed as David's legitimate successor by riding on David's donkey. And if you remember the the context there, one of his half-brothers had decided to make himself king. And Bathsheba heard of this and went to David and said, didn't you promise that it would be my son Solomon who would be king? And so David said, yes, I did. And here's what you do. And so we read that in 1 Kings 1, the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to your home. Apparently there's something significant about David's mule that would, people would recognize that it was David's mule, and it's probably what was on the mule, okay? Royal sorts of things, okay, that would indicate that belongs to the king. And so when Solomon rides on this, that particular mule, people would say, he is the one that our king has appointed to reign and rule over us. The other one is taking it by force. Okay. So, this is a sign, I think, based on the, the type of Solomon as a peaceful king. David was a man of war, but Solomon was a man, essentially, of peace as a king. The, the boundaries of Israel didn't expand, but he was the one who built the temple. He's the one who built the palaces and all of these things under the United Kingdom. And so Jesus is going to be seen as one who is greater than Solomon, though like Solomon. Secondly, this also fulfilled, as John notes explicitly, the prophecy of Zechariah that we read in Zechariah 9, which was written most likely with 1 Kings chapter 1 in mind. And that the true Davidic king, the one that they've all been waiting for in Zechariah's day, would arrive just like Solomon did on the the foal of a donkey. That was the anticipation that Zechariah wanted to place amongst his people, that one greater than Solomon would come and rule just like Solomon had come. But what Jesus is doing when he does this, I think, is very, in many ways, um, counter-cultural. He's not a king as the Gentiles would have kings, but we see that here, even in John 12, there's a reflection of what Jesus is going to say to Pilate in John 18. Because he says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So again, 
We see Jesus here in the triumphal entry is making no attempts to raise an army to throw off the yoke of Rome. He's not encouraging people to gather weapons and begin the insurrection like under the Maccabees. However, their expectation of Messiah was that he would do that very thing. That's what they hoped for. That was their felt need. How's that for a church concept right there? Their felt need was for someone to deliver them from Rome. And Jesus wasn't as concerned about their felt need as they were. He saw a far more important and pressing need. But we have these felt needs. And we... we, Just like they wanted a king, don't we want a president who will deal with our felt needs? Don't we hope and pray sometimes for the perfect president to show up who will fix everything that right now is a disaster? And uh, if if we were to examine what you think by that perfect president, I'm sure there would be a great variety as to what that president would look like. Um, Not in terms of physical traits, but, you know, ideology and values and all that kind of stuff. Okay. These people have this, uh, this sort of preconception, presupposition as to what this king should look like, and Jesus is essentially going to disavow their preconceptions. Jesus has absolutely no intention of delivering them from the oppression of Rome. What we see, however, is from Scripture that Jesus actually came to deal with our sin and rebellion. The real issue was not the felt issue, as it is with us today. We have felt needs, but our real issue is far deeper and more significant. doesn't mean He won't one day deal with the felt need. But think of this. Hebrews 9, for instance. So Christ, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, okay, so the first time He comes to bear sins, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And so when He returns, He's not going to deal with our sins. He's going to deal with the rebels. There will be that aspect of deliverance from the oppressor that takes place. But the first time was to deal with the sins of his people. The second time will be the oppressors of the people. As we think about um, all of this in in the terms of kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world, let us think again of Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so there's a kingdom, and and when we trust in Christ, we are brought into that kingdom, Okay, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We've been removed from the domain of darkness, and now we've been brought into the kingdom of light, as Paul says in another place. And And in that, in Him... Jesus, we have redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins, and so our participation in the kingdom at this point is not about being free politically. Our participation in the kingdom is about being free from the penalty of sin at this point. The other stuff will come later. Okay? And depending on which eschatological view you have, we can debate that. Okay? Okay. 
But Jesus came to deal with our sin and our rebellion. He will return to rescue us from evil people in the future. But like these earthly crowds, okay, this is, there's a sense in which this is, again, a type. It's pointing towards something else. Because when we think about when Jesus returns in the last day, what's going to happen? We're going to leave the city, so to speak, and join him. As it talks about in 1 Thessalonians. Now, some people's theology has them meeting Jesus and going back to heaven. My theology has me, has us meeting with him and returning to vanquish his foes. Okay? Because it's the last day, not the last day before seven more years. Okay? It's the last day. He's coming to take over the kingdom. But we will meet him. This is a prefiguring of what will happen. Those who are faithful to him. And that's really the technical term that Paul uses in Thessalonians is this idea of um, there is a dignitary that is coming and all who are faithful to the dignitary leave the city to welcome the dignitary and then they follow him back in where they will then dispatch of those who are unfaithful to the dignitary. That's the technical term Paul uses for a reason. So let us... Remember that as we think about First Thessalonians. Okay, we will leave the city and join him. The Jesus who returns is not going to be the Jesus that shows up on a donkey. In fact, in Revelation 19, it presents a rather frightening portrait of that Jesus. Beginning in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and by the name, sorry, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Okay, so this, John here is clearly making sure that you understand this is not the first horseman of the apocalypse, okay? Because this is one that has written on him, faithful and true. He is known as the Word of God. It is Jesus, the living Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine living, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Jesus that returns is not coming on a donkey. He's returning on a war horse. Their expectation has been delayed by thousands of years. And it's not going to be limited to Rome. Jesus will return, and when he returns, he will be a conquering king. But the one we worship now is not yet the conquering king. But the one who comes to spread the gospel of grace. Now, back to the text. It notes that the disciples didn't really figure any of this out. They didn't make the connection with the donkey and Solomon and Zechariah 9 and all of that stuff that I just brought up to you. It says they didn't figure this out until Jesus had been glorified. 
Okay? I think that's important for us to remember. They did not understand these things at first. Time would change it. Right. For instance, after his death and resurrection, we read in Luke 24 that he meets the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and after they get there, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's only after Jesus' death and resurrection that the disciples, boom, the light bulb goes on, that that thing in Zechariah 9 was really concerning Jesus. And he was the fulfillment. The Spirit is the one who would open their eyes after his glorification, and the same thing can happen to us. In our immaturity as Christians, we can have false expectations. And that process of maturity is, in part, the light bulb coming on so that we see the ways in which our expectations are not biblical. But something else happens with that. Because usually then we have a sense of disappointment. Because in our exuberant faith at times as young Christians, we think God is going to do something in particular, and then when he doesn't do it because it's not his plan, we're disappointed. And so the process of maturity is going through that disappointment such that we are able to trust him in his goodness and his wisdom that exceeds our goodness and wisdom and what we think are good and wise solutions to problems. That's a process of maturity, of learning that God does not bend to meet my expectations, but that I have to begin to form biblical expectations. Time, struggle, maturity, and so Jesus has a plan, but that plan is not confined by the box of expectations that his disciples and the crowds and us form for him. Which brings us to the third and last part, is that the rightful king is rejected by many. We see the Pharisees here again uh, in a slightly different role than we saw in Luke's account of this. doesn't mean that... Only one of these two things happens. It just means Luke focuses on one aspect and John focuses on the other. That's all. But they note that things are not going as the Sanhedrin had planned. They're upset about it. See, all the world is going after him. That word world, we've, popped, we've bumped up against it repeatedly in John's Gospel. And some people try to make world mean every single human being who's ever existed, they're not using it in that fashion here, are they? They're saying the world has gone after him. Have they? No. Are they part of the world? I would think. Okay. We have to be very careful sometimes about words, making sure that they mean what we think they mean, or we can end up with really bad theology. Okay, so. so they see a number of people going after Jesus, and they think that it's all over, that they've act, they're going to act too late. They're, they think the Sanhedrin plan has come to nothing so far, and it's, they're, they're as good as done. 
And the implication of how this is written seems to be that they are blaming each other, they're pointing the finger, or worse. And what I think we have here as an example of Psalm 2, verse, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Okay. What's the context of Psalm 2? God revealing His Messiah, His King. And here they are. His people have joined the nations. They're plotting against Him. They want to see Him dead. They're saying to themselves, in a sense, as it says in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so they are like the nations, raging and plotting in vain against the one that the Lord has chosen, anointed, and sent. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not foreign to Psalm 118. Pre earlier than the passage that we quoted earlier, we see in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so even Psalm 18, this glorious psalm that they sang at all of the feast days, they seem to forget, speaks of the fact that the one the Lord has anointed and chosen will be rejected by the very people that should have received him most readily. The rejection of Jesus does not end there. This prophesies not just this event, but the normal response that many people in power have to Jesus. The world continues to reject Jesus. Think of this in Acts 18. Verse 7, and Jason received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar. So he's talking about Paul. Jason received Paul. Paul is acting against the decrees of Caesar, specifically saying that there is another king, Jesus. They were threatened by King Jesus in Acts 18, just as the Pharisees here in John 12 are threatened by King Jesus. People are always threatened by King Jesus. They always want to cast off his bonds and cords. Many of you know I was a uh, I was converted in uh, winter break of 1986. But I don't know if I've told you about winter break of 1985. Winter break of 1985, uh, my girlfriend and I went to a retreat. Even though she was uh, Roman Catholic, she was she led the uh, she was the student leader of the um, Baptist retreat or Baptist uh, youth group. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't try to figure it out, people. <laughs> and so you know, we decided. To, you know, she invited me to go, and so we went. Of course, my mother said. You know what they're going to try and do there, don't you? Sure, Mom. Whatever. I had no clue. Yet, I, know, you know, I remember in, in, in that experience, despite the rather poorly worded version of the gospel that was sent forth, there was a part of me that wanted to give my life to Christ. There was a part of me. Enough that I actually engaged some of the leadership in talking about this. 
And there was one thing that kept me from doing it. I was a fornicator. And I knew that if I were to do this Jesus thing, that that would have to end. And I loved my pleasure more than I wanted him that year. And what's amazing is that over the course of the next year, Jesus toppled my pleasure idol. He showed me how it will not give me life, but in fact actually introduced destruction into my life. Okay? Such that a year later, almost to the day, there I am crying out, have mercy on me. I'm a fool! And directly connected to that was also, show me how to live. The fetters and the chains that I thought were my enemy are actually my friend. Show me how to live, because I've completely messed this thing up. That's the problem people have with Jesus. Not the great moral teacher guy, but the king who tells them how to live. Because they don't want anyone to tell them how to live. Because they have idols of control and power and pleasure within their lives that they essentially they want Jesus to help them, perhaps. But they don't want Jesus to save them and rule them. And that's the pushback we get from our culture. If we present a Jesus who is king, that's the pushback we get from a culture that does not want to be ruled by that king, but wants to rule itself. The world continues to reject him and end, therefore, his moral guidance and commands. Because they have rejected God as creator, as ruler and redeemer, they think they are free to make their own rules. And just as these people here in John 12, the Pharisees have hated him and wanted to destroy him, so the world is going to hate us because the gospel reveals their guilt. They want to avoid any implication that they have ever done anything wrong and that they are accountable to anybody for it. Most people in prison didn't do anything to get there. Just ask them. It's the power of sin to deceive. And so we will be hated this week, uh, I was reading Joshua with my kids. And there's one thing from chapter 1 I want us to keep in mind. And, and that is as they're going to begin the conquest, in other words, they're going to come up against hostility. Okay, We're not engaged in a, in a conquest like they were. We're hoping to proclaim the gospel. But we're going to meet hostility Okay, to the exclusivity of Jesus uh, to the morality of Jesus, all of these things, we will face this. And so it, it, God tells Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. 
Why? Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so it takes strength and courage to walk in God's way, people. He tells them, he tells Joshua, do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success where you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you should be talking about it, but you shall meditate on it, chew over it in your brain day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And the reason why there, I didn't have it in that particular portion of Joshua 1, but the reason why we can be strong and courageous is because God promised to never leave nor forsake Joshua. He is the source of our courage. He is the source of our strength. He's also the source of our obedience. And as we, as we move toward a fallen world that resists these opportunities, it is going to be very easy for us to be pulled to the left or to the right instead of walking straight with Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying, people? If he's the rightful king, then he should rightfully rule our hearts. And we, only by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit being at work in us, can say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I don't necessarily understand now why you command me to do this. Yes, Jesus. Your way is better than my way. So Jesus isn't just showing up for the feast of Passover. Jesus is being revealed as the rightful king of God's kingdom. And while the people rejoiced in their false expectations, they would soon be led by those false expectations to reject Jesus in a matter of days. A holy and righteous king is rejected by all who want to rule their own kingdoms, who want to live by their own rules. As subjects, of Christ's kingdom by the grace of God, we will be hated as Jesus has been hated. Let us not turn to the left nor to the right, but continue to walk in the footsteps of our King and our Savior. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that you have installed your king. I thank you that he's a good king, that he's not a tyrant who exerts his authority through brute force, but at this point is one who has brought us under his loving authority through his own sacrificial death upon the cross. That is the king that we worship. That is the King who has sworn Himself to be our shepherd. And Father, help us to reckon with the realities of His kingship in our lives. And for each of us, there's a different place where it's hard. There's a different place where we chafe, where we find Your commands through Your Son to be burdensome. And we ask that the Spirit of grace would work in us
that we would trust. And that you in time would reveal the goodness of your law to us as we continue to chew on it. And help us to keep speaking it. The good news of Jesus. And the truth of all that you've called us to do. Let us not forsake it. Due to the sinfulness of our hearts or the sinfulness of those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.